Hello, this is Yara Stark from the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast. Thank you for joining me today. And the guest we have on is only someone I've recently connected with uh, using our voices. <laughs> We're about to talk to him now. But I've certainly heard his name around the place um, in, in many fields, actually. So his name is Clay Collins. Hi, Clay. Thank you for joining me. Yaro, I am grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. So Clay has... And you can correct me if I'm wrong. We'll, we'll find this out, but I'm I'm pretty sure he's gone through what you might almost call the traditional life cycle now for an internet marketer, going from you know a newbie to information products to now software. He's currently focusing on his Leadbright company, which does uh, uh, lead pages, which is I believe sort of in, uh, in development at the moment, not a public release. Nope, it's it's public release. We're we're in the cloud. It's a SaaS model. There's three different levels. We're live. Okay, so we're live on lead pages, um, and you probably have seen Lead Player as well, which is his uh, sort of funky opt-in tool for video, which a lot of people uh, like Pat Flynn and uh, Chris Ducker, Mixergy, lots of great podcasts and video guys are talking about and using to uh, collect leads, among other things. So. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that, but one of the things that Clay was really well known for sort of prior to becoming a software guy was pre-selling everything he does. In other words, being able to take customers on before you create what you're going to create, which is obviously a fantastic strategy for launches because you get paid to make what you're going to make. Um, and that's what we're here to talk about. So Clay, <laughs> let's, let's hey, do this. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, with with Lead Player, it's 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 starting to almost become ubiquitous. I mean, uh, David Tightman Garland from the Rise to the Top is using it. Um, James Schramko is using it for everything he's doing. Uh, Pat Flynn is using it for all his videos on smart passive income, and um, just like you know, from from video blogger to video blogger to video blogger, it's really. Um, it's it's starting to be everywhere. Even if you don't necessarily see that it's lead player um, in 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 a lot of cases, I I don't know that I have the data to say in more cases than not. But in in a lot of cases, uh, James Wedmore, yeah, it's just it's being used. Mm. So I'm really happy about that. In terms of pre-selling, I came to this insight a while ago that uh, most people perceive that there are two ways to get a product funded. The first way is to uh, to self fund it, right? So you you reach into your pockets and into your savings and into this, uh, you know, this reserve of cash that in a lot of cases is earmarked for, um, you know, anniversary vacations or your child's college fund or retirement, right? Things you should never touch. Uh, and then going into that is one way to fudge your business. Uh, and uh, a lot of people see that there's a second option, which is uh, raising venture capital or, you know, or private equity or whatever, but, you know, raising investment uh, funds but I really saw that there was this third way to do it, which was to have your uh, to have your market fund the product. And in in a lot of cases, that is actually the better way because it forces you to get your value proposition down from day one. So you you get the marketing right, and then you kind of reverse engineer your product based on what your audience said it wanted. Uh, and, you know, in the same way that it's often the, you know, the best way to create a product, at least an information product, is to write the sales letter first uh, and then write, you know, create the product based on what you know would sell. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really good idea to do that for events, for, for information products, 
programs and also for software. So that's sort of the, the avenue that I took. There's, there's this third path, and it is, you know, audience-funded. Uh, Kickstarter has explored that in some ways, but I think it's a, it's a really kind of um, limited and, and shallow way to do it. I think there's a lot more that can be done. So I think it's pretty clear uh, Clay is very excited about all of this, too. Like, and I was telling your voice, Clay, that you live and breathe this. Now, <laughs> I'd love to know, how did this happen if it's a personality trait or a sort of a growing up thing? So can we go back in time? So with, you know, at the moment, you've got a lot of experiences. You're running a seven-figure company. You've got 12 staff, but, and you're, you've pre-sold a whole bunch of different things. So you know how to do it for software, for events, for information products and but how did that all come about? Can can we go back to even your your first venture? Did you have a lemonade stand as a you know a twelve year old or something like that? I did actually. I grew up on a, a citrus nursery. My my grandfather was my hero. My grandfather is kind of a remarkable person. He's grown more citrus trees than any person who's ever lived, like ever, uh, on the face of this earth. He started a uh, a citrus nursery with my grandmother. Uh, the day after their two-day honeymoon, uh, they had $16 in their pockets, and, and they started doing that. My grandfather hadn't even graduated from high school. He had severe dyslexia. Uh, probably he had dysgraphia, and he probably had ADD, <laughs> to be honest. But you know, he spent his entire life um, perfecting the art of growing a, a citrus tree. And what I learned from my grandfather, well, two things. Uh, the first thing I learned was that something as seemingly simple as growing a citrus tree is something that you could perfect over the course of your entire life. You know, a lot of people think, yeah, you just grow a tree. But he told me that something that was as, as seemingly simple as that could be turned into a process or something that could be an art form that you could per perfect over your entire life. So that was the first thing I learned from him. The second thing that I learned from him was that it's really okay to be you. My grandfather was not a normal person. And my grandfather, basically his existence, showed me that, that you can simultaneously um, uh, buck almost every single rule or trend uh, and still be wildly successful. My grandfather used to drive around in a, uh, you know, jeans and a t-shirt. That's all he wore every single day. He wore like the same clothes. I mean, not the exact same clothes, but it was like he had 12 Fruit of the Loom pocket t-shirts and 12 well, Levi Simpson jeans. Style. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and and he drove around in this like beat up like farmer pickup truck. Um, but yet he always had a few thousand dollars in his wallet and uh he'd drop a hundred grand on a on a ring for my grandmother, you know, when he when he wanted to. And so he was sort of the the inspiration for that. So I grew up on a citrus farm and uh my my mother had a fruit stand there, and so I squeezed uh orange juice and sold uh fresh squeezed orange juice. Um, how old and, you? and that was, that was my first venture. How old? And where was this? I was eight years old and this was in uh, rural Southern California. Okay. And so you had a lot of contact with your grandmother and grandfather. So you were living with them or were they close by? I did. So yeah, so we grew up, um, we grew up on their, or I grew up on their citrus nursery, um, they had a bunch of houses there, and just as family wanted to or needed to, they were always allowed to stay rent-free in one of those homes. So uh, my family lived in one of the homes that was at Citrus Nursery, and my great-aunt lived there, and my grandparents lived there, and it was kind of like this uh, family commune. I mean, they were all pretty conservative people, so there wasn't any like 
you know, hippie elements, but it, it was kind of an intentional community. And I was surrounded by uh, a bunch of weird uh, agriculturally entrepreneur, you know, uh, uh, entrepreneurs, I guess. The Collins family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the young, it was the young family. It was my mom's side of the family, okay. but yeah, but but that's where I, that's where I grew up, and uh, I was uh, kind of uh, an interesting story about me. If I mean, you told me you wanted to hear about the journey, but an interesting story about me was I, um, you know, just sort of the value of doing things your own way. Um, when I was in school, I remember there was this one incident that that just kind of. Um, caused my mom to make a major change in my education. And that was, I won the school spelling bee, but I was failing spelling tests. And the teachers were saying that it was because this was intentional or it was lazy. And it was really because I was dysgraphic and um, orally I could do this stuff, right? But on paper, I couldn't pass the spelling test. My mom this is, said this was total BS. Uh, I don't know if we can curse on this show, but she said it was like total BS. You probably don't want the explicit ratings in iTunes, but like it was total BS. And she said, I'm just going to homeschool you. And I think that was another genesis for what happened. I, you know, I find that people who, are, people who are educated at home tend to want to work at home later in life, right? Like we're not used to sort of leaving our own environment to go out and, and do something in this unfamiliar context that's artificially generated to get more productivity out of us. So I was homeschooled, and it's probably no wonder that I, you know, that I work from home now. How old were you when they, you were taken out of school? Uh, man, you know, I was in and out of schools for a while because I just didn't, it just didn't work for me. Uh, I think kind of the last homeschooling moment came, uh, um, I believe it was like fourth grade or so. Wow. So it's, you're very young. Yeah, it's pretty young when I, when I started homeschooling. Did that affect you socially though? Like, did you, you know, miss out on friends and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, every, everyone... Everyone says that and it's, you know, like in marketing, we're always split testing, right? So like we know what the alternative looks like. And I think when it comes to schooling, everyone assumes that like if you're homeschooled, you're going to end up as just like socially awkward, weird dude who like can't connect with other people. And uh, I didn't, I didn't find that to be the case at all. Maybe other people will say that, that I am socially awkward <laughs> or something, but you know, I still, I still played competitive sports. Um, I still was involved in, like I was involved, you know, with Boy Scouts and, um, you know, so there's still lots of other venues for meeting people, but I think, um, you know, I think the positive side for that for me was, uh, was, was that I had an intergenerational community. So when you're in school, you're always packed around, uh, a group of people who are, uh, in the same age group who are being shuttled from class to class. And to me, that's the awkward social environment. You know, when else in life are you all the time immediately surrounded by people whose uh, age is probably, you know, within 12 months of your, their birthdays within 12 months of yours on either side, uh, being told exactly what to do from class to class. I mean, that's, that's probably uh, a prescription for uh, creating a, a, uh, a group of people who are meant to work in factories or, you know, do what their corporate masters tell them to do. Right. Hence, the entrepreneur does not like that. And <laughs> right. you, you had, a, I guess, an advantage. Your mom pulled you out and you no doubt felt different as well uh, from, you know, one, from very early age. I, 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 did feel, I, feel, I did feel different. And I was kind of the weird one because I wasn't in school. And I think be, becoming comfortable with that was one of the most empowering things in the world because I was used to doing things that other people didn't do. And at first it was kind of weird 
And after a while, it became empowering. You know, like when I dropped out of uh, when I dropped out of high school, I did later return to high school because I wanted to be around girls. But <laughs> you know, I went to high school, but I, I dropped out of high school to start a software company when I was fifteen. And the reason I did that was, or the reason why I had the courage to do that is because I was used to being weird. Like I had done this before. And later, when I dropped out of <laughs> when I dropped out of um, uh, graduate school for the second time, like it just wasn't a big deal. It still kind of freaked me out a little bit. But, you know, in the scheme of my life, this was not that unusual for me to do. Clay, I've got so, the headline for your, your podcast right now, Serial Dropout. <laughs> you <know>? Totally, totally. <laughs> so you got pulled out of school, in primary school, and you, you go back to high school for the girls, and then you drop out to do software. Yep. Let's, can we just jump into these things? So um, was the software company your first independent venture separate from your family? Outside yeah, of citrus, I mean, I mean. <laughs> it was it was the first venture. I mean, throughout high school, I was so I'm 32 now. I'm in my 30s, my early 30s. Uh, but throughout high school, like the World Wide Web had happened, and uh, I discovered that people were willing to pay a lot of money to have websites created. So my best friend at the time, Sean, uh, we started building websites for people, and um, you know, we'd make uh, a few grand over over the course of a weekend, which wasn't bad. Self-taught? When you're in high school. What's up? Were you self-taught with website development, like HTML and, and so forth? Yeah. Yep. So you have a brain that, that was, you know, able to learn that quite easily or? I mean, yeah. So I, you know, I don't, you know, I've never really had my IQ tests. I don't know if I'm above average or below average or whatever, but I will say that, you know, another thing that being homeschooled taught me was, or rather didn't teach me was that there's this artificial line between the learning environment in the home environment, right? A lot of times people go to school and they're like, this is the context in which I learn. And then they go home and they're like, this is the context in which I like play or goof around or eat breakfast or whatever. So there's these separate contexts. And, um, and I think I didn't, that artificial boundary didn't exist for me. So yeah, I, I learned how to teach myself. Um, I really didn't have a curriculum when I was homeschooled. So I was really self-directed and yeah, I taught myself HTML. Wasn't that hard to do, but yeah, I was, I was self-taught. All right. So you're building websites. What happened next? Um, so, uh, after that, uh, uh, I, I created, I mean, this is the, this is the nerdiest story ever, but like, I, <laughs> I noticed that, uh, that, uh, that our school needed uh, computer lab management software. And I thought that was a really cool opportunity to create some software. Um, and another kid in our school district was writing software and getting all these accolades from the administration, I was like, I'm smarter than this weird dude who speaks Klingon, you know? And <laughs> and, and and I wanted to build something cool. So um, I got a copy of Visual Basic from the school. I think when they weren't looking, I just like copied their disks. So I had like this bootleg version of Visual Basic. And I wrote software that eventually um, my high school used to like operate their lab. So it kept kids from like going to porn sites and from starting applications that they shouldn't start. And it allowed the teacher to shut down everyone's computer. Like if there was chaos in the classroom, she could shut it down. And, uh, you know, it didn't make me very popular, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 no one really cared. It wasn't like, Oh, Clay wrote that. Now we don't like him, but I mean, but it, it wasn't like the most popular software. Let's just say, yeah, say well, you're writing software too. That's not exactly a athlete. You know, you're not going to be the popular kid at school cause you can code. Are you? That's yeah, that's true. That's true. But I did notice that like, 
even at that age that uh, that like girls appreciated like confident guys who were extroverted and willing, you know, willing to put themselves out there. And so I did have, I probably, that's probably the reason why I left high school is like, I had the girlfriend I wanted and I was like, all right, I'm just going to go now, you know? So I kept the girlfriend <laughs> and dropped high school. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> You're so, uh, so determined. Like you, it sounds like everything just went really well. You, you found what you want, did it, and then out. And I, <laughs> I'm not referring to the girlfriend when I say that, but, um, <laughs> I mean, it's everything, you know, like, I don't like this, I'm out, I'm doing software, you know? Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep going. Um, okay. So software for your computer lab leads to Microsoft, right? Yep. Yep. And then, so, so we, um, so eventually like I met the person who created all the software for, or I mean, sorry, sold all the computers to our school district and was probably selling more computers to California school districts than anyone else. And, uh, his name was, um, Andy Hong and, he was like, wow, you're doing some cool stuff. I've been wanting to start a software company. And, uh, and you're so like 16, right? Like 15, yeah, I'm 15, 16, 15. I'm 15. Okay. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and he's like, all right, I bet, I bet I could raise 120, you know, I bet I could raise about a six figures in venture capital. This is like when the, in the middle of the whole dot com thing where everyone's business plan was like, we'll create some site and it'll be so popular and we'll charge for advertising because CPMs were like, like $15 or something ridiculous back then. Mm. And, um, so we, we raised, uh, we did, we raised about 120,000 in venture capital and, um, I had about 30% of that company, I believe, um, 40, no, I had, I had like 49% and the person, my business partner had like 51. What about the and, venture um, capitalists? What'd you say? What about the venture capitalists? What are, what are they? What are oh they yeah. Shoot. No, okay, so of the part that was remaining, I had 49%, right? So obviously that got diluted. Right. Okay. You know, the shares that we had got diluted. So the venture capitalist got a certain percentage of the company, or it was, it was an angel investor, so it okay. wasn't really VC money. <laughs> well, you're 15, <laughs> right? So it's, it's, yeah, it's like, probably like his dad, right? <laughs> no, no, it was like, it was like a, a, a business associate. Okay. So we did that, and we created like um, – this software called iDialog, which allow it created like these adaptive surveys. So you could create like survey trees and you could be like, well, if someone answers something like this, then we'll show them this set of questions. Like there was, it was like branching logic and stuff for surveys. And, um, we started running out of money at some point and the whole thing failed. Like it just, it failed miserably. Um, you know, we were so close to having a partnership with JD power and associates but like it just didn't work out before our funding ran out and like it was just like the worst the worst situation and so at some point i was like well screw this i'm going to go to college okay so while you were doing that were you taking a salary but still living at home like how do you how does a 15 year old school dropout working on a startup live yeah i was making about 3 grand a month uh which isn't a ton but actually it's not actually bad for a 15 year old it's pretty yeah, good yeah right <laughs> It's not, it's not bad for a 15-year-old who just, had free room and board. Yeah, and it's not so bad was, for anyone, I, to be honest. You've got no rent. and no, You can live now on three grand a month if you've got totally. no rent. So yeah. <laughs> it's good for anyone. <laughs> yeah, totally. Stop complaining. <laughs> so so I, I lived with my co-founder in, like, Orange County, California. And so I just, like, he had a spare room, and I stayed in that. My best friend from high school ended up joining us, too, so we all lived together. Okay, so software company doesn't quite have the result you want. 
and <laughs> you go to college. Now, what are you thinking? Um, is that when you thought, well, I better be traditional now, or is it I just want to party? Because <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if that was what you were thinking. But um, yeah, yeah, like I really um, like. So I I was raised. I'm I'm not Mormon now, but I was raised Mormon, and like I really didn't even know how to party. Like I hadn't had alcohol at that point, really. Well, you knew how to get a girlfriend. Which is unfortunate. Man, why why didn't someone tell me about how good, excellent beer is that early on? Like, it's such a tragedy that like the first beer most people have in college is some like some crappy, crappy beer. Um, Anyway, it was really unfortunate. But no, I I didn't party. What I did was um, I kind of nerded out. So I got to be honest, like. I didn't do well in school and and I felt like I could do a lot better and I think that probably because I was probably because I have ADD and um I never really cared much I had this chip on my shoulder so I was like well this is my shot like I want to prove to myself that I'm smart so uh I studied way too much in college in fact like literally the only regret the only regret of my life is studying too hard in college. That's the, my my only regret was that I studied too hard and I didn't goof on, uh, goof around enough. <laughs> so how did you even get into college? Because you didn't have a high school degree, did you? No, I got into I I actually got into the number one liberal arts college in the United States. I don't know if most people heard of it, but it's called uh, Amherst College, and uh, it's it's fairly well known like the average SAT score is like really high and what but I, but I got in there just it's just it's probably marketing back then like uh, I had written some academic papers that had gotten published uh, through a job that I had so I mean this this is so like any other story there's all these twists and turns but like in between my freshman and sophomore year of college I got a job working for an academic research center um, that was doing a lot of geographic information systems research so like GIS and I was there database programmer and just by virtue of the data I had access to uh, I was able to team up with some academics and write some papers and um, and so like I had these papers I had this entrepreneurial background um, I had crappy high school um, grades but I had so I had papers published and I um, I had done well my first year of college I had good test scores uh, and I had an interesting like entrepreneurial background like not everyone has left high school to start a software company and had papers published mm. and, and stuff like that. So, and, and what course did you choose? So in college, I um, was, was I it, took a degree, right? So what? what? Yeah, yeah. So I, I I have a degree in psychology. Okay. And that was really fun. Although I've learned like a billion times more about psychology from marketing than I have from academic classes at least about social psychology <laughs> I, I, yeah i think everyone would agree with that that's pretty standard <laughs> procedure <Yep. laughs> okay so you, you made it through all of college for three years uh it was four years four years and you just studied your butt off that's what, yep. like there wasn't any business projects going there that were significant or anything like that not not during college no wow. uh-uh. okay so you almost did the one time when most people start a business you actually studied <laughs> that's once again unusual guy <laughs> yeah i mean i i would say that uh that that i was burned and i i didn't realize this until i started a software company like last may and what i realized was that at 15 i had this dream of starting a software company and I loved it. I, man, I loved it. And it didn't work out. And it didn't work out. 
because we didn't understand product market fit, we didn't understand direct sales marketing, we didn't understand conversion design, we didn't understand analytics, we didn't understand what gets people to buy, we didn't understand like lean startup methodologies, we didn't understand any marketing, anything, copywriting. And so, you know, I think it's kind of interesting that at some point during graduate school, um, uh, you know, I started blogging and then I started pouring myself heavily into marketing. And I think partially that was a reaction to the failure of the very first company that I cared about deeply and um, and trying to figure out the thing that had hurt us the most mm. with the thing I cared about when I was 15. So, you know, 15 years after I started that company when I was 15, so like around, you know, Actually, about like 27, 20, yeah, about 27 or so. I started just pouring myself into marketing. Well, and uh, I think that's uh, fine. Let's get to that point. So you, okay. you finished college. So, and I'm assuming while you were in college, you were just taking a few odd jobs to keep paying the bills and so forth, right? Or living off um, something else? Yeah, no. I, you know, I really didn't. Um, other than that full-time gig I had um, doing software development um, that, that only lasted a year because I quit it. Uh, but, uh, other than that, I really didn't have any jobs, uh, in college. It was, it was, it was paid for. Okay. And then you graduate and you've got a psychology degree. What are you thinking yeah. it's next? Yeah. So, uh, I went directly, I got a full ride into a PhD program. It was the number one, uh, program for, if I can, it's the only academic thing I really have to brag about, but, um, I, I got a, I applied to the number one program for developmental neuropsychology, um, you know, in in the United States at that time, it was at the University of Minnesota. I started a PhD program there. I wanted to study learning disabilities because I'm pretty sure that I have them. And um, you know that that whole period of my life was was all about compensating, right? Like like I I, I uh, wrote these computer programs to help me increase my short term memory. Um, I wanted to get good grades to just prove to myself that I wasn't stupid. Um, and I wanted to study developmental neuropsychology because I wanted to study learning disabilities so that I could help people create, you know, ec like cognitive exercise routines to help them overcome their limitations. And uh, I really, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. but what I really believe now is that people should basically ignore their weaknesses and just focus on their strengths. Mm. And I think that's where things really started to turn around for me was when I just stopped trying to fight who I was and start, stopped trying to compensate and just decided to go for what I was actually good at instead of fighting against, you know, what I was bad at, which is a horrible way to live. It just sucks. Mm. Yeah, I, I've, there's a book somewhere out there I remember reading about that, you know, focus on your strengths, not your weaknesses. Yeah, we have a society that forces people to focus on their weakness, especially during school. You know, you're, you're not good at math, but you're forced to do it. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so does this PhD get complete? No, no. So basically, the, I dropped out almost the, <laughs> almost the first semester. So I, I dropped out of graduate school twice. Um, that was round number one. And... Um, that first semester, I took a class at a law school just because you got like one discretionary class you could take outside your your graduate program. So I took a class in uh, international human rights law. It was being taught by the the chairman of uh, the former chairman of the UN Human Rights Subcommission, and uh, I wrote a paper for that class on the human rights of people with no citizenship. So like they're called stateless persons. 
And uh, he took that paper that I had written and he included it as a chapter in a book he was writing. And I was like, I was like, this is total BS. Like I'm in here and like supposedly at a great school for developmental neuropsychology. And yet I just wrote this paper in this international law class and now I'm published for international law, even though I'm in this other program. And so shortly after that, that professor who hired me um, or, or who, who I wrote that paper for, like hired me to be his ghostwriter. And so I ended up, um, I got a fellowship to study human rights or housing rights in Ghana. So I like moved to Ghana for like a little bit more than a summer and did that. And then he ended up hiring me full time to write a book for him, which is actually, that book is actually published uh, by Oxford University Press. You can look it up. It's called like the human rights of stateless persons. And, uh, and this um, is a kid I, who couldn't spell. Yeah, yeah. And, and couldn't write. Like I was told in high school that I couldn't write, um, but I just wasn't obsessive enough about it. But like I wrote that, I wrote, I mean, granted, he took some pieces from like other material he had written, but like 75% of that book, like I wrote every word. I even, I'm first in the acknowledgements because I freaking wrote the acknowledgements to the book. <laughs> and, and and so that was like high school dropout number two or num- number one. And then, then the next time I, I decided I wanted to go to, uh, I wanted to do a dual program in information studies and in uh, human rights because I wanted to, or in, in, in law, because I wanted to study sort of like, how access to information affects people's demands for human rights. It was something like really obscure and academic like that and dumb. <laughs> You're like, this is amazing. For, for an entrepreneur, you have quite a lot of academic background. Like I can see that part about wanting to prove to yourself that you were smart academically uh, really took a few years from you here. Like you weren't doing any yeah. businesses at all. So no. can we date this? Where are we at? Are we in early 2000s by now or? I'm so bad with time. I think it must be because you, 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 we're still talking your early 20s here when, we, when you're doing all this, right? Yeah. So to, so I graduated from college in like 2003. And so 2003. So this is like 2005. Yeah, you and I have very similar because I'm 33 and I graduated in 03 as well, I think, or 02. So, right. Cool. Now, so you let's let's fast forward a bit. Then we we we've dropped out of your your postgraduate studies twice. So you switched from neuro studies to law, and then now you're switching from law to information systems plus law. That's sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, and this is, I mean, and, and to be, this is so convoluted because I actually dropped out of college once and I transferred one college to the next and then like worked for a year in between then. So there's okay. lots of fits and stuff. Yeah, Until wow. I found entrepreneurship, I'd never done the same thing for any length of time. Um, my, my business I've done from the second I started, that's all I've done for the last, when did I start? Like 2007. So that's all I've done since 2007. Right. But yeah, during this period, there's lots of fits and starts. If anything, st- Clay, you know, you are a poster child for any parent who's listening to this who's worried about their dyslexic, you know, learning totally. disability student and is going totally. all over the place. You can eventually find what works. <laughs> eventually. Yeah. Which we haven't even talked about yet, to be honest. So let's let's get through this. Um, not you obviously decide at some point academia is not your path. So how did that transition right. happen? So that transition happened. Um, I was in this program and I, I got both. It was my second graduate school program and I got that one fully funded as well. Plus I was making good money. Interesting story. I hope my employer never finds out. I don't know what the statute of limitations is on this thing, but I had this job uh, working for a digital uh, a digital library that was funded by the government doing like 
cataloging, like I was cataloging digital assets on the internet. And I actually like outsourced that to India. So I hired someone with like a, a library degree, like a master's to, um, to, <laughs> to do my job. So I was making like 40,000 a year or something ridiculous and getting my school paid in my insurance. And like, I wasn't working hardly. <laughs> <laughs> Like, 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 I think you might be going to jail, but I'm sure they can't get you now. Yeah. Um, So what were you doing with your time then and your money? So, yeah, I mean, so, so that's when I started blogging. Cause again, like, again, I was, I was probably still so burned out on like real business and software, but I, um, to be burnt out, you know, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm so glad I didn't do it, Uh, but so, so I started blogging and I had a, a, a personal development blog called uh, The Growing Life, and because uh, everyone thinks they can write about personal development when they start blogging, and that's fine. I don't want to discourage anyone from doing that, but like at my age with like all, you know, I was a complete screw up, and I thought I had something to say about personal development and productivity, and... Um, well, you have something. You were hiring Indians to do your full-time job. That's pretty productive. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah that's true. That's true. <laughs> Life So, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so I start doing that, and uh, so I start blogging, and um, I started hitting the front page of Dig because I learned that like you could game that to some extent. Like there was a formula, and if you wrote that kind of article and you got enough Dig influencers on your side, you could hit the front page of Dig, and that was when Dig could like drive massive amounts of traffic. And then I realized that there were people who were Dig influencers that you could actually like pay to pro- to in quotes promote for you. So. I started paying these dig influencers to get my track. And I was like, well, if this is worth something to me, I better be worth something to corporation. So I got clients. I probably shouldn't reveal a few of their names. A few of them are pretty successful companies now, but I can name ones that I don't really have relationships anymore. But like um, like Fox Television Studios was one of my clients. Uh, and uh, they, they basically gave me – I was like the middleman. So they'd give me like – a few thousand, and then I'd give a few hundred <laughs> to an inf- a dig influencer to get them on the first page I, I, of Dig. I don't, I don't like the evil laugh there. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was my black hat days. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm I don't do that stuff anymore. How did you get a large but, company uh, like? I'm Fox? a firm believer that you need to know the dark arts. You shouldn't practice them necessarily, but like I really think you should know them. Like even if if you're a martial artist, you should know like all the moves that people might do to like kill someone, but you should never do them. I don't know if you heard me actually, because I think it cut out. I was curious how you landed such large clients like Foxtel and oh, sorry, not Foxtel, Fox Studios. Um, you know, especially because what you're just this guy who has a website. Yeah. So, um, so as a blogger, uh, I started just speaking with uh, with uh, other bloggers, and I started speaking with. Um, just other companies uh, about what I did because I'll like I'll call up anyone. I don't really care. And I was um, a uh, so so one of my clients uh, at the time was this company called like uh, Br- like Brazing Careerist, and um, they've got like a blog network, and they kind of got me to speak at this event in LA for like Hollywood executives, and um, speak about and what so, uh, about new media and social media and what was going on. Okay, so when was this? Are we talking oh seven oh eight? Like, because if we're talking Diggs heyday, that would probably be around that yeah. time, right? This is like 2006. Okay, so you, 2006, you, 2007. When did you start your blog? 05? 
No, I think it was 2007. So okay. yeah, it must have been 2007 because it was like right around that time. Right. So your blog is 06. No, I think my blog was early 07 and this was late well. 07. Okay. So yeah. We're, we're 07. So we're talking only five, six years ago. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and, and so I, I did that. And, and so the next logical jump in my entrepreneurial journey was that, uh, that I realized, well, if they're willing to pay for this, then there must be some actual value to this. And I should be using this for me rather than other people. So I start getting into niche marketing and, uh, I start selling like stuff in the green niche, like compost pails and, uh, cordless lawn mowers and chicken coop plans and things like that. So I start selling stuff like okay. that. So were you following someone's system with this or were you just, because, you know, from, from blogging to niche marketing is a bit of a switch, right? Because you're not yeah. going to sit there and write about all these subjects long term, are you? Yeah. So no, how did you I'm, learn that? I, I, you know what? I was giving everyone money at that time. Like I was buying, you know, like you kind of hear about the buyer, the person who's sort of in that buying mode and I bought everything. Like I even, you know, I, I was in Stompernet for like five months, which is like $800 a month continuity program. And I was in like, man, I was in every, I was giving everyone money. Like I was buying everyone's ebook. So, you know, I, there was no specific system I was following per se, but, uh, but there was a bunch of them and I was kind of just kludging together my own system for doing this and talk to a lot of people at the same time. Right. This is the heyday of launches. So you're talking traffic secrets and butterfly marketing and product launch formula and Stompernet and, you know, Rich Seffrin with the Internet Business Manifesto and all those things were out yep. around that time. Yep, yep, totally. And, and you bought it all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I bought it all or, Close you know, like we had, we, you know, I had a friend, like after a while I realized if you go to these conferences, you can connect with other people who have access to everything and there was this hard drive being passed around and like <laughs> I got access to that hard drive that had everyone's thing on, you know, everyone's uh, stuff on it. Black hat, it again. <laughs> yeah, or, or we'd... um you know, we'd, I'd get together with like, you know, we lost you again. Info product. With, Sorry, Clay. You what's dro- up? You just dropped out for a second again. You, get, you said you got together with people and. Yeah. And we, and we'd, we'd, um, you know, I'd get like three people together and we'd buy someone's $2,000 info product, you know, where the affiliate was making half of that, mm-hmm. you know, but <laughs> we, we'd buy that. So that was one way that I did it. Okay. So all this gives you the tools to do niche websites. Yep. And did it work? It did work, yeah. I mean, it didn't it 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 gave me, you know, I was living that lifestyle business. You know, I or I had that I had a lifestyle business, which is not where I'm at now. Uh but, you know, I was making like 4 to 5 grand a month and not working incredibly hard for it. Uh and and I like that. And so, you know, one of the things about consuming so many information products and watching so many launches is, you know, you everyone inevitably, you know, maybe it's a short-term thing or maybe it's a long-term thing, but, you know, you get very used to and you start understanding how people sell information products about how to make money. And I was like, well, I'm making money. Like, and, uh, you know, and I've paid my dues and so I'll, I'll start showing other people how to do it. So, I so, guess I became an internet marketing guru for a little bit. Okay, before you taught that though, you know, the, 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 where people struggle here is usually first setting up all these niche websites and making money. Was that yep. easy or hard? Like, do you have a lot of failures along the way, or was it fairly like, all right, I found, did my keyword research, built a niche website with ten articles in it, 
Google traffic came and I sold an affiliate product. Was it like that? It was, yeah. So it was an affiliate product to, um, to, to some of it was Amazon, some of it was ClickBank. Yeah, it was a, it was a pain. It was, it was a pain. And I, and you know, for the beginning, I had to subsidize it with, um, selling SEO consulting and all kinds of other things. No, it was, it was nowhere near as easy as other people had made it out to be. Um, you know, it still was, was pretty wide open in terms of, um, the keywords, like there weren't so many people competing, you know, Google hadn't come out with like Panda and stuff. And, um, I, you know, I think probably the trick that kind of helped me out the most was the whole, um, like exact match domain thing. So I realized that if I owned like a .com, .net, .org with like the exact phrase in the right order with like no dashes that I could rank pretty quickly. So one of my sites was compostpale.net and that's why I sold compost pails. And that was where I got the bulk of my traffic uh, was from Google and it was primarily through just buying up a ton of exact match domain names. I, I remember at one point, I um, I found like the top ten biggest markets for um, for like attorneys. It was like New York, San Francisco, uh, Houston, uh, you know, a few whatever the ten cities were. And uh, I realized that the way people searched was they searched for um, the name of the city first, and then attorney and lawyer. So I bought like. Break bankruptcy attorney Los Angeles, you know, um, uh, divorce attorney Los Angeles, blank, you know, like every single variation. I bought like 300 of those. It was ridiculous. And to this day, uh, I mean, that was another way I made money was selling domains, like exact match domains. I'd get them to rank and then I'd sell them. And to this day, I still sell like one of those every single one, every once in a while. Like the other day, I sold um, like Los Angeles real estate attorney dot com or something like that and that was for five hundred dollars so like this was not like hey it's a straightforward like there wasn't an easy story about how i made income then like it was just like a bunch of crap all put together um you know the, most of it was not service-based it was like these little hacks like it really wasn't a real uh you know it wasn't a real business in the sense that it was like long term like everything was like based on a loophole that I found, uh, it was short term. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I don't know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't really the <laughs> janky, best time. I think it's the, the phrase. It was janky. It's <laughs> yeah. Totally janky. Okay. Yeah. So that led to you doing the natural thing. I'm making money. I'll teach people how to make money. And did you, exactly. you have success with that too? I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a, I had a lot of success with that. As um, that became your main business. Yeah. It, it did. It did. I mean, I still. I always throughout the time. I still was doing the stuff that I taught. So you know, for a while, like I have this. I have this uh, domain called businessideas.net, and for a while, that ranked number three for the term business ideas, uh, anywhere between position one and position three for the term business ideas. And that was a really cool domain name because it had like these. It had so many. Do it had so many keywords built into it. It's probably the best in terms of niche marketing. It's probably the best domain that I've ever owned. So like, um, you've got business ideas. So that's like the top tier key phrase, and then embedded within that, you have like second tier domain names. So you've got like uh, home business ideas and um, 
niche business ideas and um, um, like um, sports business ideas, like all these like second tier ones. Mm -hmm. And then based on that, you've got like all these other kind of like long tail things like um, uh, hookah bar business ideas. Like seriously, like hookah bar was like – there was this uh, product on how to start your own hookah bar that was like one of our best-selling ClickBank products. Wow. So – so and then I and then I uh, we had a, a product for uh, how to become that was our own product. It was an affiliate thing. It was our own product on how to become a, uh, a medical transcriptionist, and so we sold that one too. So you know, uh, so you're basically doing the traditional niche marketing and and yep. flipping, like which a lot of people still do today, really, don't they? Um, how did that yep. lead to software though? Because that's a fairly big transition. So was there some steps in between that, or did you just? Go, you know what? I'm sick of information publishing. We haven't really talked about your method for pre-launching it either. Did that start developing at this stage? Yeah, my my method for pre-selling uh, started out when when I did my my very first big launch, and uh, I had a really, you know, blogging is probably the best education I've ever had for how how to do copywriting because I think it's it's virtually impossible to create a large audience and not know how to write copy and to not have a sense of how to serve them. And so I kind of just went back and forth with them. Like, it's kind of like a tennis match. Like, I wouldn't do anything until they did something. So I'd be like, hey, um, you know, I'm thinking about making this huge, uh, making this product. Um, I'm wondering if anyone would be interested in me making a product. And they'd come back and say, like, yes, I'm interested. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, before I release that, just to demonstrate, you know, what would come with this, I'll make a free product for you. What kind of free, you know, if you could have me make any kind of product, what would you be interested in? And they'd tell me what they'd be interested in. And then I'd go back to them and say, all right, I think I know what you're interested in in terms of the free product. Here's what I think it is. Is that right? And they'd say, like, yes or no. They'd help me refine it. And then I'd go back to them and be like, all right, uh, it's going to come out on this day. Um, it, you know, um, is there anything else you're looking for? And they'd tell me, and then I'd release it, and then I'd be like, then I'd get testimonials from the free product, and I'd say, all right, based on your feedback on the free thing, here's what I could charge you for. Would you be interested in that? And they'd say, yeah, and I'd be like, all right, you know, and I, I, it would, it would, it was long, and it would take a while, but it worked incredibly well. The first launch I did. We had a 25% conversion rate from our launch list, um, which was remarkable. Like not from my entire list, but from the people who said they were interested in the launch. And it was because I had this kind of this interactive. It was an interactive launch, um, and I had people really involved in the story about how the product came to be. And um, if, if people think their idea was your, if people think that your product was their idea in the first place, because it really is then they're much more likely to buy. And if they feel like they're part of the story about how the product came to be, then they will buy. Mm, a sense of ownership. So I'm assuming this is all a spinoff from building your audience through the blog, and you, you obviously had an, an email list from that as well, especially as mm-hmm. you became a teacher of how to make money online. Right. Uh, what was that blog again? What was the URL? Oh, there's a bunch. So, <laughs> Well, what was Clay Collins known for? Was there like, you know, I'm, I'm Entrepreneur's Journey. Was there a... A specific site where you got the people you would sell these products to. Yeah, um, it was it was called. God, there were so many versions of it. It was, it was called Project Mojave. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like the Mojave Desert. Okay, underground, <laughs> huh? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> okay, so that was the first time you tested your system of really working with the people you're going to sell to before you create the product, right? Correct. Okay, so. Take us forward then. So we're, we must be getting close to the present 
the last few years, right? Yeah, you know, that was more like, I mean, it feels like now, now everything just becomes, it feels like it's been forever because this is, I've sort of settled down and the, like the huge shifts aren't happening as much. But um, at that point, you know, uh, I, I, I really just start getting more into marketing at that point. So I'm selling like niche stuff. But then at some point I'm like, I'm done with like, I call them um, the lost boys of lifestyle design. So like there's a whole generation of people that read Tim Ferriss's book, they don't know what they want out of life. They haven't really figured out their relationship with women or with work. And they just want to get away from it all. And they see, you know, they read the four hour work week and it seems like clever and interesting. And they want to like kind of do all these hacks in their life. And, um, and, and so, you know, kind of my clients then were like, kind of dudes going through existential crises who had no sense of direction in their life and it lost their way. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I have been that person, you know? So I'm not like criticizing that. But at some point, like, I started to get a sense of my own identity and what I was good at and what I wasn't. And I realized that, you know, clients with existential crises are kind of the hardest people to serve because they don't really know what they want in the first place. Uh, and you know, in, in manifesto marketing, that's all about sort of the raw, raw and quit your job and, you know, all that stuff that, you know, I start evolving as a human being and I'm kind of, I'm not interested in spouting rhetoric anymore or doing revolution marketing. Um, you know, that's, that's all about this, you know, that's, that's all about like kind of, you know, that's all sort of like, you know, rhetoric based. And so I create my first product that's really just kind of a marketing product. Um, uh, for and, who? Is it like a, for, for individuals for, or for, for? Yeah, for for information marketers. Okay. And it, it was called the interactive offer. And it was, it was all based on like case studies. Basically, I had a bunch of private clients that I did this process with, the pre-selling process. Um, one of the first was a woman called Kim West. And so she's, she's at sleeplady.com and she's, um, she's sold over a hundred thousand books on how to get your child to sleep at night. So, um, we did uh, a pre-sell with her and it did incredibly well. And we started collecting more case studies and, um, I did my first, I kind of became friends with Jeff Walker and he, um, he's like, yeah, you should base, you know, he thought it was a good idea for a product. And so I launched that product and I did pretty well. That's an obvious connection with his thing, isn't it? It's almost like a sub-niche of launches. It is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, so I I remember Jeff saying, you know, I can teach people to launch, but um, I think a lot of people have trouble figuring out what their offer should be. And so that's what my product was in part focused on, how to to figure out what your offer should be and then how to launch it. Did you make millions? Uh, (laughs) we, we, We made like, uh, we made seven figures. I don't know that we made uh, eight, <laughs> but we did okay. Right. So you're thinking, well, I've made tons of money now. I can retire, right? No. I mean, I, I start getting I start getting really unsatisfied with a lot of things about um, if it sounds like I'm a total flake until this point. But <laughs> it really uh, does. Like, I feel exhausted, Clay. And we've, <laughs> you know, we, we've just gone through your life, really. <laughs> and... Wow, there's so many changes, and um, like it's almost like you don't follow through with anything. But there's a few things you're just gifted at that make it work, um, or you find ways to really you know, cleverly get the solution, uh, and it works. But nothing really fits right. You know, it's sort of like 
you're playing around with different things. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, so you know, I, I was yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of worried about getting in this level of detail. This is the first time that I've really told this full story, and I'm worried that I'm going to come off as a flake. But I think most stories, like I could have told you the marketing version of this story, um, but you know, I think yeah, this is this is my life. Like, um, and and so I think everyone's life has a bunch of these. Um, sort of fits and starts in them. I think because you're homeschooling as well, like you're, you know, not not right. that's unusual. So you were you were used to change in that regard and not having the standard pattern. So it's probably influenced you throughout your life. But you know, you you've been saying, and you can sort of get the thread even throughout this interview that now you're for the first time in your life doing something that you want to do and stick with, and you've been doing it for a while like that. You feel settled. I think was the phrase you used before. With I do. Yeah. So I, can we talk about e- the transition to that? Yeah. So so even with what I'm doing right now, um, you know, with software, I still feel like it, you know, this doesn't feel like there's all these things that we can highlight as being shifts. Um, but to me, this is very logical. Like I still have the same blog that I've had for um, for a few years running now. It's at marketingshow.com. Um, and I'm still, you know, I'm creating software that rather than teaching marketing, has marketing principles inside of it, right? So like with lead uh, with lead pages, I could create a course on how to create landing pages or I could just create a, a landing page platform where the templates have best practices built into it. Well, so, you know, actually, before you talk about that, can you tell us what lead player and lead pages are and why did you go after those markets? Yeah, so... Um, so lead player is a video player that um, that helps people bloggers um, collect leads with video and, and generate more sales so um, it, it it basically allows people to just kind of put an opt-in box anywhere within a video but it's got um, I think it has a great deal of sophistication it, it remembers who's opted into which list so if you have 10 different lists it, it remembers which of your visitors opted into which list, and so they don't get asked twice unless the video is for a list they aren't on. Um, it, it also allows you to globally set calls to action. So you can make it so that, like, let's say you're doing a webinar on a given day, and someone goes and watches a, a video that you put up a few years ago. Um, someone, you know, at the end of that video, they can see a, a call to action for a webinar that you're doing that day. So you can create global calls to action across all the videos on your website. And uh, and why did you come up with this? Uh, I came up with it because I had bought a video player and uh, I, I wanted to do this. Like it was one of the selling points of this kind of competing video player that you could create a, a call to action easily and, um, and, and create uh, opt-in boxes, and I got it. And it was like, well, just kidding. Like, you've got to supply your own HTML for the opt-in box, and so you have to custom code that, and it needs to fit inside. Like, you couldn't just be like, all right, here's the text for the opt-in box, boom, and, and then it would be up. So it didn't work um, very well. It just, it just didn't, it just didn't work. Like, and uh, I wanted something with incredible YouTube integration um, because I wanted to. Both, uh, you know, I, I wanted to be where the traffic was, which is YouTube, and I wanted people to uh, simultaneously increase their YouTube view count, you know, for everyone who watches the video, which helps you out inside of the YouTube ecosystem. Like, YouTube will send you more traffic if you have more views because it perceives the video as being a popular video. 
Um, so I wanted to increase my view count and um, and and I still wanted people to get all the benefits of being able to collect leads and um, and get opt-ins on their videos and and have these calls to action. Okay. Yeah. Now, were so you thinking what... brand new business? Were you thinking drop everything else? I'm going into software. Is that how this happened, or was it more of a gradual rollover? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't. It's all you do now, right? Predominantly. It's, like, yeah, we yeah. don't sell information products anymore. I, I was thinking that this is another product that is going to serve my existing audience with the needs that they have from us, uh, which was they had marketing needs. And so, you know, I think people watching externally might think, oh, God, Clay shifted directions. Um, when we're not, it's the same audience, it's the same blog. We're selling a product that helps them accomplish the same thing. But the venue for doing that is uh, a software product as opposed to an information product. Mm. So, so it's potentially more stable and, and you can build a business around that. So it's almost like you're just going deep into something that worked. Right. I mean, I, I, I really feel like, you know, like we didn't shift directions. I feel like we're just going deeper. Like we're just doing the same thing we did. We're just doing it better. Mm-hmm. And that led to lead pages as well? Yeah, yeah. Why so, are you laughing? <laughs> because 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 honestly, like I'm questioning in this interview whether I'm doing the right thing. Like in the sense that um, at some point there's so much data that I wonder if it's just sort of like it just annoys people, and so I'm wondering if I'm annoying people with sort of how circuitous this path is. But like if I would have just said something that's simpler. And that had a few just kind of key points and you know feel good takeaways. I wonder if that would serve people better, um, you know, as opposed to this sort of very complex or cutest path that people might not be able to wrap their head around. Like I just don't know. Um, well, we'll find it, out. We can ask and like everyone listening into this. Let's get some comments. And if you've listened yep. listen this far, then obviously yep. you've paid attention and, and you're enjoying the story. Like I certainly you know am, and I, I love knowing that. Especially the yeah. part about homeschooling, and because that's I think dictated a lot of the rest of your life, and and yep. probably almost why you're successful because you you're yep. nonconformist and you wouldn't be doing this otherwise. So, and I think yeah. that it also allowed you to leverage your um, dyslexia and learning disabilities to succeed. Where in the past you would have been just sort of forced to adapt to it somehow and probably be doing a job you hate right now otherwise yeah so yeah i think it's important because people certainly listening in might be thinking well i'm i haven't figured this out yet and i've been dropping out of everything i do and nothing fits right and then it's sort of great to hear that you know you you can get find something that does fit and you can leverage whatever it makes you unique it, you know and, and entrepreneurs it's perfect for this if there's a a style of living a life that suits misfits it's entrepreneurship so um, yep. I, I hope you're happy to wear the misfit tab. I am, um, but yeah. So let, well, let's wrap it up. Um, okay. Because I think we, you know, we we've reached a current business. I, I I would love to spend an entire hour talking about how you've even grown this, but it, it, maybe we don't need that much because, like you said, it's just an extension of your existing business. So you already had an email list, a, a blog, an audience. You said I've got this great tool for your videos to help you capture leads. You you did you um sort of pre-sell that as well, or was it just yeah his, yeah yep. We sold both lead player and lead pages. So, um, you know, a lot of people have questioned whether or not you could actually do this pre-selling thing. Like, I remember I was I was interviewed on Mixergy about pre-selling, and a lot of people in that audience sort of are interested in SaaS products. 
And they were like, yeah, but can you do this with software? And I was like, of course you can do this with software. Like that to me was a no brainer. And next thing you know, I'm doing this with a SaaS business. So, <laughs> um, so that was before uh, you were doing it with, with software. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and did it work from day one? Did you get customers and yep. profitable? Yeah. And you've yep. just been growing since then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think you said we had we have twelve people on our team. It's it's only it's only seven people, but sorry, yes. um, <laughs> we we have seven full time in house um, people. You know, I, I guess some of them aren't technically employees; they're like contractors, but they're they're full time for us, and they don't work for anyone else. And um, all this is supported by by our software. And um, you know, I'm I'm a huge. I think that you know, I think that one thing you know, that people might be thinking about when they're hearing this is that kind of in the information product space or the bootstrap space, kind of all these pivots, I guess people call them pivots now because that's trendy, but all these pivots I've gone through seem really unusual, right? Um, but if you look at the software space, very normal. Like it's very, very normal for like uh, uh, someone who does startup, someone in the startup world to have six or seven or eight businesses before sort of they do that thing that that sort of defines them or like becomes their big company like mm -hmm. so um you know in my space that you know there's plenty of people who have like this is their fifth company and like that's the one that took off you know sort of in the in sort of the venture backed software space that's very traditional because what happens is you get you know like you raise you know anywhere from 1 to 5 million and um, the investor isn't interested in a business that's just going to sustain your life. That's just going to sustain their lifestyle. They want it to either blow up or die. They don't want it to, to flatline. They want to see how it works. And so, someone will get one to five million in venture capital, and that business will either create hyper growth uh, or it'll flatline or die. And for every business that flatlines uh, or, or dies, you know, both of those eventually die. And that entrepreneur is on to the next thing, which he hopes will create hyper growth. Mm. And um, even though I didn't know about the, the asset class that is venture capital, and I didn't understand how to raise it initially, um, that's always sort of been my emphasis, which is why I've pivoted. pivoted. I'm only interested in hyper growth. You know, I, I want to have a business that can eventually be a billion dollar business or a business that's worth, um, you know, that creates multiple hundreds of millions per year in revenue. And so sort of, underlying all my pivots is kind of this this desire to create hyper growth mm. and so you know when it becomes obvious to me that that isn't the track that i'm on um you know it becomes necessary to adjust in a way that is going to be that is going to make that more likely mm. and so i think that's kind of been uh, underlying a lot of you know sort of some of the change you've heard about right and i'm assuming that's the plan forward with what you're currently doing is that's that's the vision for the future yes Yes, absolutely. Venture capital, growing the revenue, and so on. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Well, I, I, I hope you don't feel that you've given too, um, you know, like a disjointed story here, Clay. Because I, I mean, maybe you should listen to some of the other podcasts because a lot of people have a lot of things in their their story that seem like they're a little bit all over the place. But it's, uh, it's not. I think, especially having lived it, you no doubt see that one thing logically led to another and. And, um, you know, it's, it's an entrepreneur's journey. That's, that's what it is, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, totally. um, 
uh, what, what do they say about entrepreneurs? You have to be uh, a lover of ambiguity, of, of not knowing what's going to happen next. So you can't be that kind of employee mindset where you need the sense of stability because you're not going to get it as an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. I heard, I heard Steve Blank once say that in his experience, and I was listening to Steve Blank talk with this guy, Mark Suster, who's just uh, an amazing venture capitalist. And, uh, uh, and, and Steve Blank, who was sort of the, the mentor for Eric Ries, who wrote the book, The Lean Startup. But, you know, Steve Blank is actually a pretty famous dude in the startup world and himself. Uh, he's a lecturer at Stanford University School of Entre- Entrepreneurship and stuff. But um, Steve Blank was saying that in, in his own experience and in, the, and in his experience as a venture capitalist and investor, uh, almost without fail, um, uh, entrepreneurs tend to come from uh, very unstable homes. And the reason um, they're drawn to entrepreneurship is they sort of uh, – they, they thrive in a – an environment of instability. And when they're not in that place of instability, they often try and create it because it's what they're comfortable with. Um, and some uh, entrepreneurs end up adjusting as their businesses grow, right? Like if they create billion dollar businesses, they either need to evolve so that they're no longer creating that instability when they get into the growth phase of their company. So they either need to uh, evolve and not create that instability or they need to hire a professional CEO to come in mm. uh, to create organizations be, or to create organization because otherwise they can completely screw it up trying to recreate their childhood instability yep. so that they can they get into drugs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> all that like money, that. you can buy a lot of drugs. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> exactly. All right, Clay, I think that's a, a great point to wrap up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? We've been here for an hour, so it's... Uh... Speaking of chaos, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, for people listening in, uh, we've mentioned your site or your, your, your software and your service uh, several times. But just to be sure, the best website to go to find out all about Lead Player and um, Lead Pages and everything like that? Uh, you know, I'd say uh, leadbright.com. So L-E-A-D-B-R-I-T-E, leadbright.com. And that's in particular for anyone who's using video and wants to capture leads or looking for um, landing pages to capture leads. You're all about capturing leads. So uh, I am <laughs> pretty yeah. important role online for anyone doing business. So totally awesome. Um, thank you, Clay, for being so open and honest with the, the whole story. And um, yeah, it'd be interesting if we can get some feedback, anyone who was listening in to leave some comments on uh, whether you enjoyed his story or you know anything you want to say. It'd be great. So thanks, Clay. Cool. Thank you so much, Yara. I appreciate it. And everyone who's listening in, you know where to go. If you want to get more podcast interviews like this, you can go to entrepreneurs-journey.com or Google my name, which is Yaro, Y-A-R-O, and you'll find my site that way. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.